Thank you, Matthew and Emily, for sharing a bit of your story with us and for challenging us. Um, it's great encouragement. Now, would you turn with me to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this text, we ask for your blessing. We ask that you would give us understanding. We ask that you would cause us to look deep within. We ask that you would point us to Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. The two-year-olds among us are adorable, I look out and I, I see a few of them right now. They are they're gifts from the Lord. But they are walking, talking illustrations of the powerlessness of a do's and don'ts religion. <laughs> we can say do and don't till we are quite literally blue in the face and it might have some temporal benefit at adjusting the behavior of the two-year-old, but it does not reach the level of the heart. (laughs) And we see no lasting transformation. Listen, we have been looking through Colossians and will continue to, and in Colossians we see this this theme of the all-sufficiency of Christ and the call to our union in Him. And as we go through the unfolding of that message, Paul is, is warning us of the false teaching that abounded in that day and abounds in this day. And today we see that the false teaching has a bit in common with our meager attempts at getting a two-year-old to do and don't. It's powerless. But... Beyond the powerlessness of do's and don'ts religion, uh, some of us also who are older than two know that it 
also brings with it a wounding. Some of us bear the scars of behavioralism, religion. And so the question is, why do so many of us think that do's and don'ts is the very heart of Christianity? Well, for many of us, it's all we've ever known. It's all we've ever heard. And hearing this message repeated over and over again, some of us have bought in. Thinking that if I just mind my P's and Q's, that that's actually what Christianity is. And in buying into that message, many of us have unknowingly kept Jesus at arm's length and missed out on His beauty and the beauty of the gospel of grace. Others of us have heard this message and rejected it outright, doing the equivalent of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If that's what Christianity is, I want no part of it. I'm going to run away. So, could there be a different goal to Christianity besides do's and don'ts and behavior modification? Yes. Yes, there is a different goal in Christianity and it is union in Christ. The goal of Christianity is an intimate personal relationship that reconciles, that restores, and yes, transforms. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message that Paul is advancing in Colossians. And this morning, well, last week and this morning, he advances that message by exposing a particular brand of false teaching. As we go through this text, like I said last week, we'll get a bit teachy this morning, but that teachiness serves a purpose because it is our protection against the false teaching that we encounter. In this text, there are three main subcategories of the false teaching. One is a don't, one is a do, and one is an accept. So first, the don't. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. This don't religion is centered around questions of food and drink. Now, what are these questions? What are these admonitions regarding food and drink? Well, verse 17, as it connects the shadow and the substance, gives us some clue that, particularly in regards to the food, there there may be in this false teaching some holding on to the old ceremonial law. The ceremonial law had its place in the old covenant it was meant to mark out the people of Israel as being different from the nations around them and was to be a sign of their set apartness or their holiness now whether they ate or drank had nothing to do with their holiness it was a shadow meant to point to a substance that they were different because of Christ so as Christ came, he fulfilled holiness. These, the food laws were fulfilled in Christ, but the false teaching tried to go back to it, even though Jesus and the apostles as they established the church 
heard from, well, the apostles heard from the Holy Spirit. They, they, they saw that that era had passed. It was fulfilled in Christ. So in this uh, don't eat, there is some hearkening back to the old ceremonial law, but it was more than just don't eat. It was don't drink. And that tells us that these restrictions were going beyond the food laws. Nowhere in the food laws was there restriction on drink. As a matter of fact, this restriction on drink was a very clear reminder that these false teachers were adding to the law. As verse 22 would tell us, it points out that this was according to human precepts and teachings. Drink, wine, was a sign of favor, is a sign of favor in God's covenant and among his covenant people. And so for these false teachers, there were two issues at play. The false teachers denied the good gifts of God and two, they they tried to teach that the way to religiously connect to God was to abstain from these good gifts. It actually sounds a lot like Eve in the garden who minimized the blessing of God and added to the commandment of God. Look, there are many directions we could go as we think about this teaching, as we try and apply it to our lives. Because ultimately, these false teachers were adding external tests to prove one's adherence to God. Now, while there are many places we can go, I feel like it is most appropriate to just hit head-on one of the things that in our Bible Belt cultural Christianity we struggle with, and that is the question of alcohol. How do we view alcohol, and how have we been taught to view it? For many of us, it is the proverbial don't. And if you want to prove your adherence to the gospel, you will stay as far away from alcohol as possible. But the problem is, in Scripture, wine is a sign of God's favor. It is a sign of God's blessing that we see throughout Scripture and we see culminating in the new heavens and new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact... If you go back to Deuteronomy 28 that lays out the blessings and the curses that will accompany either our obedience or our disobedience to God's covenant, the absence of wine is a sign of cursing. So why would we hear so often that a Christian is to abstain from this good gift? We have no other option to see than it is a blatant addition to Scripture. Because in the shadow, we see it as a blessing, but we see here the difference between the shadow and the substance. Jesus is the substance. He is the blessing, and His very first miracle was turning the water into wine. And don't miss the fact that it is a super abundance of wine, and it is a super quality of wine. 
Now, certainly there is biblical wisdom in terms of our usage, in terms of our, how we use these good gifts. There is biblical command to avoid overuse, which applies to all of God's good gifts. Because the something within us wants to make the good gift an ultimate gift, and that will always fail us. There's biblical wisdom in regards to the overuse of wine. There is biblical wisdom in terms of the the setting of our use. We should avoid it, particularly for those who have struggled with addiction or if we are in the presence of those who have had addiction issues so that we might not be a stumbling block. But Scripture also gives us wisdom in not being a stumbling block for those who have yet to see the goodness of Christian liberty. Though we'll see, as we continue, that there is much more at stake in this teaching than Christian liberty. The point is not that because of the gospel we get to drink. More to that as we continue. But this false teaching says don't eat and don't drink if you're a true Christian. It exposes the teachers who would add to the Word of God in this way. So the Bible says don't buy in. Don't buy in to the false teaching. That's one subcategory. The next subcategory of the false teaching is not a don't, but it is a do. Do observe religious Days, or maybe more appropriately, observe them in a manner in which we, the false teachers, prescribe. Verse 16 speaks to uh, festivals or new moons or a Sabbath. Festivals and the the new moons are are laid out for us in the ceremonial law in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28. And don't miss the fact that they are meant to be celebrations in which we celebrate the goodness and redemption of our God. And yet in the ceremonial law there were specifics of how they were to be observed. I'll just be honest with you, the presence of the Sabbath here is a bit more difficult for me to explain And I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm not as clear on this. Teachers and theologians far smarter than me, which is not hard to find, they they disagree on this. But as I've studied this and looked at it in this context, it seems to me that Paul is not declaring the Sabbath to no longer be valid. It was... A creation ordinance that is repeated in the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And by the way, when we finish Colossians, we are going to do a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And we'll see how though the ceremonial law has passed, the moral law has not. More on that in a couple of months. But it seems to me Paul is not... Uh, invalidating the Sabbath, but rather he's focusing on the extreme versions of observance of the Sabbath, some of which were found in the ceremonial law, some of which were found in the additions to the law that was being promoted by Pharisees and the false teachers in Colossae. In the broader text, context of Scripture, we see that the moral law 
continues. The Sabbath remains, particularly with its focus on the good gift of work and rest and a focus on worship. But, but the extreme practices either are gone or never were because some of them had been additions. This seems to fit with the passage that warns against those additions. Yet the false teachers missed it. They missed the heart of the gospel and sought to make it an issue of externalities. It's easier to control that way when we make sin an external issue. We go then to the third subcategory. We've, we've heard the don'ts, we've heard the do's, now how about the accept? Accept what we've tried to call hyper-spirituality. Again, it's hard to know the details, but he speaks to some version of worshiping angels. I, I don't, again, know what this means, that false teachers either were worshiping angels or were advocating some manner of worship through angels, but, but combine it with this version of reliance on mystic visions, and there is this version of hyper-spirituality that seems to place the subjective religious experience on par with the Word of God, and worse than that, it imposes it on others. That was them. How about us? Where do we see versions of this? Well, in some charismatic traditions, there is a requirement that if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not a Christian. Make it a litmus test for authentic Christianity. It's a false teaching. And we must see it. But we also must be aware that this is not merely a message for them. It's not merely a message for other traditions. We, as enlightened Reformed Presbyterians, have our own litmus tests. We have our own favorite giftings of the Spirit that we put forward. We can even think of it in the admonition given to us this Sanctity of Life Sunday from Matthew and Emily. Absolutely, the Word of God calls us to defend life in the womb. The Word of God calls us to be pro-life. But that goes far beyond the externalities of a voting record and a bumper sticker. It challenges us to also examine how we affirm life. Not only in our children, but in those whom we encounter in the grocery store. Where are we tempted to make our Christian bumper stickers a matter of externality? The Word is calling us to, to repent of this. To, to stop adding to the gospel, making sin an external. This is the warning that we have in the false teaching. But as we consider how it, rea- how it relates to ourselves, we move from the warning against false teaching to false teachers. Look, I spent the bulk of my time on uh, this issue of teaching, but Paul spends the bulk of his emphasis on, their, on the teachers. 
who are these teachers? I, I, I don't like to call out others from this pulpit, and I'm not going to try and name names, but Paul is very clear that those teachers who would add to the gospel by putting before you a litmus test, whether it be a don't, whether it be a do, or whether it be an accept, he speaks very clearly and very forcefully against them saying, don't let them pass judgment on you, don't let them disqualify you. I don't have to call them out because Paul is calling them out. He's saying examine their teaching and don't give that teaching a power over you. Don't buy in by adding do's and don'ts to to prove your adherence. The Word of God says they are false. But we need to know that sometimes those false teachers are others. Sometimes the false teachers are us. Verse 20 tells us if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you're still alive, do you submit to them? Do you see that when we embrace this teaching, when we, when we think that we are still subject to the elemental spirits of the world or whether we practically live as if we are, we ourselves have become the false teachers that Paul warns about. This is what he talked about last week by saying if you died with Christ, you died to the power of the elemental spirits. So don't act as if you are still alive to them. You and I, we need this reminder because this teaching and the practical outworking of it is very subtle. It has a ring of truth or as Paul says here has the appearance of wisdom do not handle do not taste do not touch and we buy in because you and I are conditioned to think in terms of behavior now no doubt some of this behavioral instruction is helpful but these three subcategories that we've listed all have one thing in common They're external, which makes them controllable, which makes them attractive. We can set them forward as a a list to be measured, to even be obtained, attained. And that's the great danger, making us think that sin is outside. And some of us have bought in. And if that is you, I admonish you from the Word of God, don't believe it. Don't give it power. Now, some of us here in this room are, are hearing that and, and because we're, we need to get over ourselves, folks. We, we're allowed to offer an amen to the teaching, okay? But because of who we are, you're thinking it in your mind. You're thinking in your mind, amen, don't tell me what I can't drink or eat. And that's part of the problem. Because for some of us, if we're honest, the amens that we're too afraid to voice, but we're certainly thinking in our mind, have more to do with a desire for Christian liberty than they do for Jesus. And that's where we've got to be careful in here. Because there's more at stake in this call to, to abandon external teaching or a teaching about external religiosity than abundant living. There, this is a matter of salvation. This is not a question of I get to drink wine. It's a threat to your soul. 
Because Jesus plus anything equals nothing. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says there will come a day when the kingdom of heaven comes and not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that many will come. And they'll cry out, Lord, Lord, but he will say, This entering the kingdom of heaven is a matter of doing the will of the Father to which those people who will say, Lord, Lord, are going to offer their resume. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 7 to say, doing the will of the Father is a matter of knowing Him and being known by Him. In John 6, Jesus goes even more, uh, makes it even more clear when he says to do the will of the Father is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Friends, to know and to believe is to place the entirety of our trust not in actions, but in Christ alone, who by grace alone, through faith alone, reconciles, restores, and transforms lost sinners into his image. External religion will not do. It will not save. So resist it and don't let others require it of you. Instead, do what they will not. Hold fast to the head. The opposite of this external Christianity, this, I don't even call it that, external religiosity is clinging to our union in Christ. It is to love Jesus. That's what this is about. And so many of us don't know what it means to love Jesus because we've built a system of religion on what we're supposed to do and not do. But Paul is telling us throughout this letter and in this text to depend upon the head, to depend upon Jesus for leadership. As he grows us in Christ-likeness, friends, holiness matters. But don't reduce it to mere do's and don'ts. And to rely on him for provision for food, for drink, for rest. To cling to the head, to hold fast to the head is to find wholeness and salvation in Him and to look for it in nothing less, particularly in ourselves. We can get awfully creative in how we do this. This ESV text summarizes it with the word asceticism. If you don't know what that word means, if you look it up in the dictionary, it it basically speaks to some severe form of self-discipline or avoidance of all indulgence. That's what the dictionary says about the English translation of this word. But this ESV translation might miss a little something. If you've read it in another translation, you might see something having to do with humility or rather false humility. Greek, this word here is is calling us out for our false humility. Do you know what a humble brag is? (laughs) A humble brag is a creative way of bragging by cloaking it in some humble trait. It's a pretending to be humble in order to make ourselves look better. Did you hear the warning about being puffed up? That's the outward goal of external religion. It's a humble brag. It's being puffed up even by putting forward our forms of severe self-discipline. 
Look at me. Look what I don't do. It's the very opposite of dependence. It's the very opposite of humility. It is the very opposite of the gospel. In the church, we don't need a humble brag. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you know the story of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It's one of the churches that uh, the Lord used to establish Christ Church. And some of you know the story of, or rather know personally from example, the ministry of Briarwood's founding pastor, Frank Barker. For those of you who don't know him, Frank is a dear, humble man. And I've been blessed to get to know this man and have been struck by his story. Some of us who don't know the story see a large, powerful church on a hill down in Birmingham. Here's the backstory: Frank Barker was converted while in seminary. You heard me. He was converted while in seminary. While doing all the external things that religiosity would demand and even more so. And yet somewhere along the way while training to be a pastor he realized that he did not have a personal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He wasn't trusting in Christ alone in the Lord changed his heart, and set him on a new path. After seminary, he he began the work of planting Briarwood Church, and the Lord used this quiet and, if we're honest, sometimes awkward man to lead a mighty movement of the Spirit of God and to steward what we see as a revival in the city of Birmingham that extended from the late 60s into the 80s. And here's the thing. Much of this revival took place within the church. Don't miss that. Much of this revival took place within the church. As the church goers realized through the preaching of the word and the personal evangelism that took place from Frank and those who came along with him that salvation was, to, was a gift to be received. This salvation was not a matter of external religion because that external religion had no power to save. That Christianity was a matter of a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That message was preached from the pulpit. That message was shared personally over coffee tables and revival broke out. Because the people in the church didn't know the gospel. And there are people in our church who don't know the gospel. If that is you, I invite you, I implore you. Know that Jesus came to save sinners. And to invite sinners like me and you into a personal intimate relationship with Him. That is the heart of the gospel. And that is the gospel that transforms. Amen. Friends, we in the church need this message, but so do those outside of the church. Because so many 
have been hijacked by this false teaching as we heard last week and so many have been wounded by this false teaching and have run from it. So friends, let us let go of the false religion that has abounded. Don't let those who preach it pass judgment on you. Instead, hold fast to the head and find true joy and true transformation in Him. In Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, this is your word for us this day that so many of us need to hear. And we need to hear it in different ways. And that's why we ask before and we ask now that by your spirit you would place this word expertly in our hearts. That we would hear it and receive it, and be transformed by it as individuals and as a collective body of Christ. Do this, we ask, for your great glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.